Amen and amen. Thank you, Brother Derek, for leading us. We, as you know, we're trying a wide variety of things and combinations. We're trying to find, uh, we're trying to find the groove of where we should be. I don't think that's a proper uh, current word, is it? Uh, if you were golfers, if, if this was a golfing crew, I would say we're trying to find the sweet spot. But if you're not a golfer, that probably doesn't make any sense either. But uh, we're just trying to find the balance, and I appreciate the variety and the enthusiasm of, uh, of uh, our, our musicians and uh, Brother Derek as he leads us in great confidence in that. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm reading from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15, the very end of chapter 15. And while you're finding that, let me just say again how appreciative I am for those who have filled the pulpit. Uh, what, what an honor to have ministers, uh, retired and active, be a part of our church. Some people, some of my peers are scared to death to have a former pastor attend church. I, I consider it a great blessing, gentlemen. Uh, who knows better the love of people and the needs of a church? I count on their wisdom. I'm so honored that, uh, that these elders attend our church as they, as they can and speak as the opportunity comes. It gives, us great, gives me great confidence, not only that, uh, that God is at work in, in, in a wide variety of ways, but it's a great comfort to me to know that I have a listening ear who stood in my shoes and, and knows what's uh, going on. And uh, gentlemen, I thank you for, and Missy, for uh, uh, your uh, preaching these past few Sundays. Well, I wanted to preach on, this, on the life of David for a long time. Actually wanted to preach last year, and the Lord just didn't seem to say yes, so I didn't. But I look forward to beginning a series on the most significant man of Scripture, exclusive of Jesus, the young man called David. Uh, God gives David a, a, a distinguishing characteristic from anyone else in Scripture. God describes David as a man after God's own heart. Sometimes that kind of language is confusing to those who might be new to the church or a Christian faith, but the heart is used as a symbol of the center of our lives. The heart is used as the, as the foundation of our lives, as the seat of emotions and decisions. When God, David had a heart after God. David's core beliefs, David's foundation of his life was similar to that, it, that it's the center of God and who he is all about. And uh, a designation, a man after God's own heart. He didn't say that about Abraham or Moses or Noah uh, or Isaiah or even the great apostle Paul. No one has that designation uh, but David, a man after God's own heart. And I'll tell you folks, I want to be a man after God's own heart. David was far from perfect. In fact, he was sometimes, he was not even in the, in the realm and the universe of perfect. But he kept time and time and time again coming back to God, to the heart of God. And I tell you that if we can somehow glean, glean some truths from his life and his experience and his connection with God, we can be better men and women prepared to serve the Lord. And so I look forward to these next few weeks about uh, uh, talking and looking at the life of this most significant man in Scripture. Well, he comes on the scene in chapter 15, David does. Actually, he doesn't come on the scene until chapter 16. Chapter 15, beginning with verse 34. I think the last verse of chapter 15, and we'll go into chapter 16. If you have your Bibles open to, to follow along, if not, to, uh, uh, listen carefully. Then Samuel, who was the prophet and the priest over the people of God. Then Samuel left Ramah, the city of Ramah, and went up to his home in Gilbeth of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him. 
And the Lord was agreed that he had made Saul king over Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 16, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul is still king, and King Saul will hear about it, and he might even kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice unto the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him, and they asked him, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, so consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Listen to this verse. The Lord does not look at things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called his next son Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But, the, but Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen this one either. Jesse had Shemaiah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord does not choose these. So he asked Jesse again, are these all the sons you have? Jesse says, there is still the youngest or the runt of the family. But he's tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We'll not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. David was, came. He was ruddy with fine appearances and handsome features. And the Lord said to Samuel, arise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went back to Ramah. Our Father, I pray that you would open our minds this morning and open our hearts to receive your message and help us, Lord, as we just endeavor to be the best people we can be for you. We ask you to guide us this day. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, David comes on the scene in the midst of a national crisis among the people of God. The nation of Israel, designated as a nation devoted unto God, the descendants of Abraham, the father of the nation of, of, of the people of God, uh, things were in a mess in Israel. And they were in a mess in Israel partly because of the people's desire. You see, Israel had been led not by a, a politician. Israel had been led by, uh, by the high priest, by the priest, by, by, by the guy that, uh, that received instruction from God and dispensed it to uh, the leaders, of, uh, but uh, the leaders decided for a while that was not good enough. In fact, they told God they wanted a king. And when God questioned them as to why they wanted a king, they simply gave an interesting answer. All the other nations around us have a king, and we don't want to be different. I want to say to you this morning that as a child of God, if everybody's doing what you are doing, you're probably off track with God a little bit. And God had His people distinguished from all the other nations around them. They were led by not a king, not a politician. They were led by a man connected directly to God. But the elders didn't want to be different. 
And they insisted God give them a king. God didn't really want to give them a king, but after a while, he finally gave them their desires. And a man named Saul was chosen to be king, head and shoulders tall above all the others. He was, a, he was a, an all, well, I started saying all-American-looking kid, but that doesn't seem to fit. He was an all-Israelite-looking kid and, uh, uh, and began to lead God's people. And for a while, things went well because Saul began to listen to the prophet Samuel and do what Samuel commanded him to do as God had given the instruction to Samuel. But after a while, in the midst of great success, Saul fell into the pit many politicians fall into. After hearing he was great, how great he was, over and over and over again, Saul began to believe what he heard. And he thought it was all about him. And pride begins to enter into, and his, his uh, actions and arrogance take over, and he begins to do things the way he thinks they ought to be done, and he, he, he ignores the instruction of God. And uh, We don't have time to go into a series, uh, the discussion about that, but after a series of events over a little bit of while, over a little while, God finally said, that, that's enough. If he's not going to do what I tell him to do, I'm going to reject him as king. He even said, I regret that I even gave in and made him king in the first place to the prophet Samuel. Samuel, remember, is the son of Hannah. Remember that Samuel, that Hannah was childless in her, in her adult years, in her, after she became married. Uh, she promised the Lord if he would just give her a child, she would dedicate him and give him back to God. And God blessed her, and she conceived and gave birth to a, to a boy. She named Samuel, and after an appropriate amount of time in which he was kind of able to function on his own, she took him to the temple and under the tutorship of Eli, and dedicated him to the Lord and left him there. He was raised, he was conceived and, and supported by a praying mother, and he was raised by the man of God. And Samuel became a powerful force for the people of God, and now he is an old man, he's at the end of his career, and he is, he is revered and he is feared, you know, he has that kind of power. Samuel is crushed at the failure of Saul, and he goes home and begins to mourn for him. We've read it this morning. And after a while, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but after a while, the Lord says to Samuel, Samuel, what are you doing? Mourning. Get up, wash your face, fill your anointing horn up with oil. I've already, I've got a task for you. And don't, don't continue to think about the failures of Saul. I have appointed another king, and it's time you go anoint him. Get up, wash your face, get ready and be about my work. Interesting dialogue there uh, in the 16th chapter. Uh, Samuel says to the Lord, well, when, when Saul, even though Saul has been rejected by you, he's still officially king over Israel. When he hears that I have gone to appoint another king, it can be dangerous for me. And God said, don't mess with the politician, with the political side. Yeah, I've read it. You know he didn't say it quite that way. But you get a herfer, you get a cow, and uh, uh, you lead that cow to the city of Bethlehem, and you call for religious service that's going to involve worshiping to God and sacrifice of this animal, and there'll be dinner on the grounds afterwards. Doesn't quite say that, but you, you get the idea. And so the feared, revered prophet begins to walk. It's interesting, when he gets in sight of those, uh, look, the lookout in Bethlehem, they begin to be afraid. And when Samuel gets close enough to him, they say, are, are, are you, uh, you know, what are you here for? Do you come in peace? By the way, the prophet of God didn't just show up on a house call. He usually came because he was directed by God. Sometimes it was good news. Sometimes it was the judgment of God. Sometimes it was all kinds of things. And, and his appearance would have, would have uh, brought great concern. 
and he said, I'm here for peace, and we're going to have a church service tonight. And we read how uh, he, uh, he, he consecrated the men and invited Jesse, this guy named Jesse, and uh, invited Jesse's sons, and, and everything was set in place. It's interesting that the Lord sent him to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a major town in the Christian world today because it's where Jesus was born. It's the Christmas story location. It's all of those things, but in reality, Bethlehem was not much of a city. Five, six, seven miles outside of Jerusalem, one man has described it as a map dot city. It's not a place you went to. It's not a destination. You might go through it on, on your, your journey somewhere. It's kind of one of those signs like we have in, one of those cities like we have in Texas that the welcome to this city sign is on this side and the thanks for visiting our city is on the other side. Nothing seemed good to come from Bethlehem. It's interesting that God didn't direct Samuel to Jerusalem to the, to, or, or to the center of, of, of the Jewish religious setting. I want you to go to this out-of-the-way place. And we read how Samuel did just that. And uh, we don't know the structure and exactly in which the sons of Jesse were brought in, but, but uh, Samuel stood ready to anoint the king, a son of Jesse. The first son that went in was the oldest son, Eliab. He was, heir to the, he was heir to everything Jesse owned. He was a guy that had the power. He was a guy that everyone would look to in this setting as being the heir apparent of his father. Eliab walked in. I imagine Samuel getting, standing up and putting his hand on the top of that jar of anointing oil, getting ready to do the task, and God said, Samuel, sit down, not him. Well, let's bring the second one in. And the second one comes in. You've seen, the, you've seen the beauty pageants, you know. They walk down the center of the aisle. They turn and stand this way. They turn and stand. They, they, they make a circle and make a spectacle out of themselves. Samuel, no doubt, did the same thing, ready to anoint him. And the Lord said, not this one. And the third one came in. By the time the fourth one came in, I don't believe Samuel even tried to stand up. I don't think he even had his hand on the top of the cap of that jar of anointing oil when number four, number five, number six. And to the shock of Samuel, number seven. And the Lord said, not any of these. And God said to Samuel something we often forget. If we've been in church, we know, but we often forget. It is significant. God said to Samuel, look, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the center of a person. The Lord looks at the point of the center of motivation and desire and intention. The Lord looks in, inward to us. I'm glad God is not an outward judge. I'm glad God does not see just the final product of, of my decisions and my actions, and I am judged by that. I am thankful the Lord looks at my heart as the center of my being. Now seven sons have come by. The Lord said not any of them. Samuel has to be a little bit confused. And so he says to Jesse, is this all the boys you have? Surely there's someone else. And Jesse says something as remarkable as being the whole thing taking place in Bethlehem. Yeah, he said, there's, there's one left. There's the youngest in verse 6. I guess verse 8. There is the youngest. Actually, in the Hebrew language, the word translated youngest here is best translated the runt. Not just the littlest, youngest brother. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a notation of rank in the family. The, the runts out there watching those few sheep. 
And Samuel said, go get him. And in fact, the buffet line does not start until he gets here. And they went and summoned David. Can you imagine a teenager, days out in the countryside, uh, uh, sleeping on the land and under the, under the open air and, uh, and with the sheep. And, and uh, all of that to me just says that he probably wasn't us. He probably didn't appear or smell like he had just showered and freshened up <laughs> with the smell of sheep on him. Confused, perhaps, dirty, not really ready to go to church in his church clothes, his church mind. It's a, it's a, it's a worship celebration, and, and they've got David from work. But when he walks in the room, God said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And to the surprise of no doubt everybody in the room, especially surprising to, to Jesse, I would imagine greatly surprising to seven brothers who thought they were it. The runt comes in, and the Lord said, He is the one. And this begins David's journey with God as a man of God. And the Bible says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon David from this day forward. But what happened next, it, to me, is the most shocking part of the whole story. You know what happened after that? You get right to the point. Nothing visibly happened. Everybody went home. The indication is David went back to the sheep. Samuel went to the city of Ramah. Certainly indication that when the church service was over, Jesse and the seven sons went home. It's the most undramatic ending to the most dramatic event in Scripture, in this section of Scripture. God chose. Samuel anointed. And then everybody went home. What did it all mean? And thus begins David's journey. It'll take 66 chapters of the Bible to tell his story. He, he is, there more is written about David in the Bible than anyone except Jesus. David's name is mentioned over a thousand times in Scripture. He's mentioned almost 60 times in the New Testament. He begins to establish and, and, and inhabit the, the holy city of Jerusalem unto God. He establishes Jerusalem as a pretty important place that's still going to be important in the, in the future and in, even in the last days. David would write 73, at least 73 of the Psalms, perhaps some more, but identified with 73. The most incredible, soothing, powerful words come from his pen. And uh, he is a powerful, powerful man. But not all the time did David walk the right path. In fact, one writer has said about David, when David was focused on God, none was better. But when he allowed his eyes to get off of God, could anyone be worse? And the story of David, the life of David, is, is one of a, a triumph and tragedy as David began to allow his sights and his intentions and his heart to be drawn away from God. He was able to return back to that again and again and again, and that was his one redeeming thing. But, but David is an, un, an interesting man. He stared down giants because he looked past the giant to see God. But he could not take his eyes off of a woman taking a bath. David led massive, conquering, triumphant armies. But he had trouble managing his own family. David was so popular at times, people went before him singing a song of praise to him. David has slain his 10,000. King Saul did 1,000. David has slain his 10,000. David was a hometown hero. 
But after a lifetime of service, he, he really would come to the end of his life and die all alone. But God has a special place for David. God made a covenant with him that David would have one of his descendants sitting on the throne always. And in fact, the most amazing thing said about Jesus is that the Son of God is a son of David. What about this man? Caught the attention of God. It wasn't because he was perfect. It wasn't because he never made a mistake. It wasn't because he did not write. He, he, he never sinned again. It wasn't because he had it all figured out. There was something about him, though, that connected with God. He had a heart after God's own heart. I remind you this morning that David is every man's story. And what impresses me the most about him is that if David can somehow navigate through life and mistakes and misjudgment and pride and sinful periods in his life, if David can navigate through all of that and still be connected with God, I want to know what it is about him that caused him to do that because I need that in my life as well. A heart after God. And so we will begin a journey uh, these next few weeks looking at David. But let me conclude with this uh, part of the beginning point with David's connection with God. Three thoughts about this, and I'll be finished. The first is this. God, David was God's selection, God's specific selection. David did not choose God. God chose David. Nothing in David's life would indicate him to be a worthy man to lead the very nation of God. He was a teenage boy. There's no evidence of military experience. There's no evidence that he was a great strategist. There's no evidence that he had been enrolled in some school of thought and studied great, uh, great battles and knew what to do. And in the sense of an army, he, was not, he didn't have experience building, but he became a prolific builder. It's amazing to me. When God chose David, he is doing the most menial job for a boy to do in this setting, he is tending sheep. We've made that sheep herding and shepherding kind of a big deal because of our Christmas observances, but in reality it was not. No one grew up to be a, wanted to be a shepherd. Shepherds had a bad reputation. And David was left out in the, in, in the open spaces with the sheep, so much so that his father didn't even summons him to the banquet. And yet God chose David, not because of David's credentials, not because of David's uh, known ability, not because David was co politically collected to a powerful family. David was God's choice and God's alone. I want to remind you this morning that that is the story of us. God chooses us. God chooses to love us. God chooses to let, give His Son to die for us, to be a sacrifice for the sins that we have committed. God chooses us for eternal life. God chooses us, and God's grace is extended to us that covers a multitude of sins. God's selection of us is all about God and nothing about us. We live today in a day that believes that that seems to believe and preach and, and uh, live by the example of their life, that, that, that we're pretty good people and God chose us because of who we are and God chose us because of who we know and God chose us because of who, who we're connected with. But folks, on our best day, the best day of our lives, we are so unworthy to be connected with God as, as it is in our worst day. We have nothing to offer God that would cause Him to choose us and send His Son to die for us. There's a, a, a popular uh, thought in the religious world today that, that, I, that I earn my salvation, that if I do enough good works, that somehow I earn points with God. 
there's, there's an underlying thought that is so prevalent in religious times today that says that if I work harder than you do for God, I'm probably just a little bit more special than you are. By the way, in the last, in the last eight days, I've attended church five times. Anybody attended five church services? Man, I hope God sees the hands and God sees that I attended five church services. That ought to, that ought to do something for me to put me a ring on the ladder above uh, somebody that didn't attend I grew up with the, in the old days when we had a Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, a Wednesday night service. It was kind of easy for us to think, those, those three timers a week, to think we're a little bit better than the Baptist church that doesn't have a Sunday night service. And they only attend two services a week. And pity, and pity the man who attends only one service a week. We're three timers. Look at us. We do all of these good things, God. Aren't you impressed? And I respectfully say, not at all is God impressed. We should do good works because He's done a good work in our lives. We should do good works and right things, and we should go to church, and we should be leaders in, in helping people and kindness and all those Christian attributes. We do that because of what He's done for us. We do that not because we gain favor with Him. God has chosen all of us. We are unworthy to be chosen by God. We're as, we're as a good of a choice to be chosen by God as David was in a no-place town, out in the middle of nowhere, tending sheep in a menial job, not even recognized and remembered by his father. God chose David. It was all God's choice. And I tell you this morning again, I am so thankful that God has chosen me to be one of his own I'm so thankful that Jesus looked down from heaven and said, there's been a few hundred thousand years, Larry's going to come around, and he's worthy enough of my devotion, and I would give my life for him and give my blood for him so that he might be saved and find victory over the works of the enemy, and the devil could be defeated in his life. God chooses us. Never forget that what we have from God is God's free gift. Freely given, His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, His repentance is all initiated by God. Now, we ought to work hard, and we ought to be examples in church, and there shouldn't be jobs that, need to be, that, that are unfilled. But it's, we do that because of what God has done for us, not because we are worthy to Him. Salvation is God's free gift. Salvation in Christ by the blood of Jesus as a, as a redemptive means is the heart of the gospel, and it is the heart of God. And I am thankful for God's free gift of salvation. When the church forgets what we're all about, when the church forgets that it is salvation in Christ by His blood that is the, is the main tenet, when a church forgets that, they're, they're, they're out there in no man's land, and they missed connecting with the heart of God. I just want to remind and point out to you dramatically that David had nothing that would cause God to choose him from our perspective. God chose David of his own accord, and God chose us of his own accord. But by yielding ourselves to him, by our heart connected with God, we are somebody in him. We are children of the King, and we have a home in heaven. We are joint heirs with Jesus, the Bible says. He calls us sons, and God calls us His children. And we have the great privilege, the great privilege, of referring to God as our Heavenly Father. I'm thankful for God's choosing. He chose David in that way. Second thing I want to point out to you is that God is always at work. Even when we don't understand it. Even when we think God has forgotten God is always at work 
to accomplish His purpose. I believe there's somebody here today that needs to really get that, along with myself. God is always at work. I can't see Him. I don't understand it. The nation of Israel was in a mess. God did, they need some great help. They call upon God to help. And what does God do? He goes to Bethlehem and finds not the oldest, not the biggest, not the best looking, not the tallest. He finds a guy out there tending sheep and chooses him as God's solution. And God is at work in our lives in ways just like this. We can't see it. We can't understand it. We can't believe it. The enemy, by the way, likes to come and tell us just the opposite, that God is not at work, that God does not know what to do, that your problems are so great God is confused and scratching his head and convening a committee together to discuss it. So untrue. God is at work all the time. For his, especially for His people. And I want you to have confidence this morning in your particular situation to know that God is in charge if you let Him, and God is at work for you. We'll never know it till we get far back uh, past that and can look back and see, man, the hand of God was there every step of the time. I've learned this in my adult life, that what I thought were random acts that were happening to me were not random at all. I just didn't know what they meant. God was in charge. And it's interesting to me, again, to say it, that in the midst of a national crisis when the politicians had failed and, and corruption was everywhere and the priests were corrupt and the church took advantage of people and abused people in such a way, God's solution was not to send a, another country to judge His people. God's solution was not to have a revival come across the land and focus on a man they chose. God's solution started outside of a nowhere place focused on a kid that wasn't even invited to the party. God is at work. I want to say it again. Somebody here needs to be reminded that God is at work whether we understand it or not. And in fact, it's only life and perspective that reveals that when I thought I was all alone, God was directing traffic in my life every step of the way. One of the, one of the interesting things about getting older, there's not a whole lot of uh, great things about getting older other than just being alive. I get amen to that by some of you. One of the interesting things about being older is to have a perspective and to look back. I'm so ashamed at times in my younger years when I was almost mad at God to think He had forgotten me, He had left me, He was, he was leaving all this mess in my hand to figure out. I'm so ashamed to realize that I've got a perspective now to look back and to realize just exactly the opposite of that is true. God was orchestrating events every step of the way for my good and for His glory. God chose David. It was, David's, it was God's choice, not David. God is at work whether we realize it or not. And then finally, David and Samuel had to trust God enough to go back to their regular place of duty and be faithful. Most amazing part of the story. I'm out here at, a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at an entry-level job, less than entry-level job. I work uh, by, the, by the hour, and my job is in jeopardy every hour of the day, and I don't know if I'll have a job tomorrow, and I don't know if I'll get paid tomorrow, and life is hard, and I don't know how to get out of it, and God comes in and says, I'm going to make you president of the company. I think I'd like to go get my few belongings and move into his office or her office. I think it, it would have been interesting for Jesse to have, to have called back home to his wife and said, get, get all the stuff together. We're moving to the big house in town. 
none of that happened. In fact, when the most dramatic event that takes place in this section of history happened, everybody went back to their regular duties. There's a great lesson in that for all of us folks. God is at work in your life. God is trying to accomplish far beyond what we think we need. God is trying to do something in our life that is bigger than grander than anything we can conceive. God is at work for us. Why will He not bring it today? That's the question I have no answer for, except that God is in charge. So what am I supposed to do in the, midst, in the meantime? I do the things God has given me to do faithfully, joyfully, because I trust God. It is an incredible lesson in Scripture that we sometimes fail to realize. God is at work. God is up to something. God is up to something big. But the time is not right. In fact, for David, it wouldn't be right for about 10 years. It's going to get worse for David here in just a little while than, than, than he could have ever imagined. God has got a plan, and God is executing his plan. But why not now? And what should I do in the midst of it? A lot of people come to these crisis points in life and they get mad at God. And they question God. And they scold God. And they, they offer such doubts. <clears throat> By the way, I, I've been there. I'm not trying to say it's somebody else. I've been there. We, we get to these places and, and we get so angry and frustrated that, that people get mad at the church. Once you've gotten mad at God and realized that He didn't especially and impressed with the tenter tantrum, the only thing you have to turn to is the church. And we turn to each other and we get mad at the preacher and the teacher and the music leader and the, who cuts the yard and, and who cleans the church and who drove by two times and who visited and didn't come back and who used to go. We get so focused on all this stuff. When the truth of the Scripture is we should trust God and stay busy at the task God has given me. I, wanted, I thought early in life that God would call me to, 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 to be a, a national preacher. I know that sounds kind of crazy, and I don't share that with many people because it seems ridiculous. But I thought there for a while that if I really prayed and trusted, I could be, I could be a national speaker. I wanted to preach to thousands of people, ten thousands of people in life. And I guess my decisions and all that, but life didn't unfold that way for me. I find that for a period of time, my ministry consists of teaching a Bible study in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and traveling around and preaching at places that are in transition of a pastoral staff. I didn't like it. I thought, Lord, surely more, surely more. There's, there's more than that. It's my desire. The Scripture says, you will work to give me my heart's desire, and I quoted all the Scriptures I could and, and, and struggled in that process so long. I finally did it long enough to realize this is where God has put me. It's not where I wanted to be. But so what? I'm going to embrace that to the best of my ability. I'm going to do it with a seriousness. I'm going to do that. I taught an adult Bible study of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in, this, in the public school system every, morning, every Wednesday morning at 6 o'clock. I'm not a morning person. I don't like to get up at 6 o'clock. I don't like to get up, period, for that matter. Five or six or seven years, it got so big we had to move it to the boardroom of the school district. I want you to think about that. You cannot read Scripture in the classroom. You cannot pray in the classroom. But we have a holiness Bible study taught in the boardroom of the school. And, and administrators came and principals came and coaches came. And once I finally realized who was there, that scared me even more. And I thought, Lord, I'm not qualified to do this. And they didn't know the word holiness or care. We spent one year studying the book of Ephesians. 
We had some members of our school district that had never owned a Bible, purchased a Bible, first once there. God's doing a great work, and I'm struggling with Him because I don't like it. To realize, going to various churches, I've, uh, I've, uh, I've preached about 30-some-odd churches through changing of pastors, and for the first few years, I struggled with God. I finally realized God has done a gracious work in me to allow me to speak for Him, to allow me to be a representative of Him, to allow me to stand and sometimes proclaim His Word in an environment that is different than anybody than I desired in, 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 in not a religious environment. I preached in restaurants. I preached in a hotel, hotel room one time. I got called to, to, to a, a pretty large gathering in the, ball, in the ballroom of a Holiday Inn, got there, and they had double booked, and their group was bigger than ours. So they had two hotel rooms that had a dividing wall, and they gave this group those two rooms. And I stood on the corner uh, against the one wall by the bed, and the room was full of people and uh, had church. The only thing I can think of to say at the beginning of that is this is probably the most holy thing that's ever happened in these hotel rooms. And I thought that was funny, but they didn't. <laughs> I'm just trying to say, folks, God gives us opportunities. And we need to faithfully be about God's business. God sent the most significant man of Scripture. God sent the anointed king back to the sheep pasture to take care of the sheep for a little while. Could it be that God offers us sometimes small places of responsibility so we see how faithful we are in those before adding to that? David trusted God enough to go back to his work. By the way, we need Sunday school teachers always. We need people to work with the children in our church. We need, we need greeters and ushers. and There's, a, there's a, an, an unending list of things we need. Will we be about God's work as God calls and as God leads? Well, we begin today with the, 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 uh, the entering of David in Scripture. It's in an unusual way. It's in a pretty odd setting. It's amazing to realize in the midst of a great national crisis, God goes to a nowhere town to pick somebody that's not even recognized and identified as to do a great work through, and He will make him the greatest king His people has ever had. But when all that presentation was over, David went home and stayed faithful in doing what God had him to do. David was God's choice. We are God's choice, friend. Celebrate God's grace. Celebrate God's mercy. Celebrate God's forgiveness. It has nothing to do with us. It is all about Him. But thank God He chooses us. Remember that God's at work. Even when I don't understand it. Even when I can't see it. In fact, some of the most amazing things God has done for me when I get on the other side of it, I'm absolutely shocked. I pray for God to intervene. I pray for God to have a solution. I am actually shocked at the solution God has brought. It is so far and so extensively beyond what I was asking for. God is at work. Not a time to doubt. Not a time to get mad. It's a time to hold to what we believe. And in the midst of everything, we need to trust God enough to let Him work and be faithful about that, the place God has put us and serve Him with fear and reverence. And let God work in our lives. This is God's message for us today. Let us be encouraged. Let us go from this scene encouraged. I ask you to continue to, if you choose to, to read beginning in uh, chapter 16 of the book of 1 Samuel about David. And we'll talk about him again next week.
In fact, what happens to David next is worse than sending him home. David begins to encounter great opposition to God's anointing. And how he responds to that makes all the difference in the world. I want to remind every one of us that God loves us enough to die for us. I want to remind you that God's grace is equally given to all of us. I've not gotten more grace because I've been to church more than you have. I've not, you've not gotten more grace because you've, you've, uh, you've, you've worked at a homeless shelter more than I have. Thank God we have people that do that. And thank God we go to church. Everybody ought to go to church. But God's grace is freely given to all of us. And we trust that God is at work, and we simply seek to trust Him. It's David's step to being the man that he was, a man after God's own heart. I want to tell you again, I want to be a man after God's own heart. I don't understand all that means, but, it, but what I do understand today, I know I have to be faithful and find that the things that are important to God are important to me, and the things that are important to God are the foundation and emphasis of my life. We praise God for His great goodness. And everybody says, thank God for grace. Would you say that? Thank God for His grace. Uh, let's stand and bow our heads for a word of prayer. And Derek is going to lead us in a closing chorus. Hope that you will come to church next week with great expectation for what God's going to show us in Scripture. Our Father, we are thankful today for the chance to be in Your house. I'm so grateful to be worshiping with my family. Thankful that You placed me here you've given us each other I celebrate you for that I celebrate you for your calling in my life for your work in my life I celebrate you for not giving up on me when I've made dumb decisions and tried to do something else we thank you for your grace and may we live this week with great confidence that you're working on our behalf and not listen to the enemy as much as we listen, can listen to you and trust you we love you we're thankful for your great goodness to us we ask your blessing upon our lives and in all that we do. And in these things we ask in your precious name, amen and amen.